Here we go. <laughs> awesome. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming, guys. I'm super excited for this new series. Um, so um, I, because it's the first one, I'll sort of briefly describe the format. Um, so I've asked everyone to bring a question. So it can be a question for the group that you want to discuss uh, or like a challenge that you're currently um, struggling with uh, as part of your own uh, startup journey. Um, so thanks everyone for contributing those. Um, and then basically the format of the talk is that we'll just kind of go around in a circle, each introduce our question, and then we'll have a little group discussion around it. Um, so uh, today's topic is about team building, customer engagement, and pivoting uh, kind of all across the, <laughs> all across the whole startup process. Um, I'll just start with mine. Um, so for me, a bit of context, um, over the past week, I've been in the process of um, hiring a new contractor, uh, and I actually just recently signed the agreement with him, so he's going to be starting on Monday. Super excited about that. Um, but through this process, I've been asking myself, like, you know, what are the good qualities to look for, especially in early hires, um, or, or like more broadly in, you know, it could be a co-founder, it could be an early hire, whether that's a contractor or employee. Um, and specifically with like technical hires, I'm quite curious on what everyone's thoughts are. Um, what are your favorite questions to ask an you know, interview, whether that's like a technical or non-technical interview? Um, and like with those questions, what, um, how, how do you, what are some of the answers you've seen? And like, how do you assess those answers for like, are they the right qualities for your company? Cool. <laughs> Are you going to start now? <laughs> for me? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think for my process, like what I did was um, like I, I didn't really have a, like a formal technical interview in the sense that like we wrote some code in an hour or something. But I did ask every candidate to submit like example work product. So like code that they've written before that was not under NDA. Um, that they can share with me as a representation of their style of coding. Uh, so there's the sample work product I looked at. And then also um, in the interview, in addition to sort of introducing each other, I did go through like a kind of problem solving mock um, simulation. Um, so I think those are the two biggest pieces that for my evaluation with the code uh, with the code that they sent me, I mostly was looking for how readable it is, um, how well structured it is. Um, I think from my experience working with engineers, like for the most part, like people go into engineer, uh, go into engineering because they're really smart and they're good at solving problems. Uh, but where I see the biggest variation is in terms of their um, ability to communicate uh, complexity and you know, the technical aspects. Um, so, you know, they may be very brilliant, but if they cannot work with me <laughs> or you know, a team, that makes it, that makes their, you know, uh, contribution a lot more limited. Uh, with a problem solving mock-up, I was mostly looking for just um, their ability to work under uncertainty. Like I'll give them a prompt and I'll sort of explain, usually the problem is something they would actually be working on um, uh, if they do uh, come on board. And I give them some context, uh, but for the most part, like there's a lot of open-ended questions. So I was looking for what kind of questions they're asking in order to dive into the problem. And also whether they're able to break the problem apart into discrete categories so that it becomes uh, a lot more manageable. 
Um, so that's kind of, I don't want to color everyone's answers. <laughs> that, that was just my approach. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's pretty, uh, it looks like you've thought about it a lot. <laughs> and you had quite a bit of experience doing that. A little bit, a little bit, yeah. Have you done interviews, Zerzar? Like, yeah, yeah. So I've um, I've hired contractors, um, also hired some early employees. I would say, let me talk more about the employee side of things. I think that one uh, people tend to cover less. Um, for me, trust is is key. Like, if you're trying to hire someone, even if it's your first employee, but maybe they're not on a full time basis. Um, if they have the potential to be your first employee, if you think that role will grow into something that's going to become an integral part of your company, like you need to be able to know that you're going to trust them. Um, and so for that, that means either you know them personally and you've either worked with them or, you know, you know them in a work capacity. Your friends are not always the best uh, candidate because they may not have, you know, a great work ethic or something like that. Um, or if you don't know anyone yourself personally, then they come highly recommended to you from someone that you respect. Um, and I've seen this happen where like someone looks really great on paper or, you know, even you review their code and they're great and they may even just be amazing coders, but because you're, they're so early in a company and they, maybe they don't understand, or maybe you guys don't get along at a social level. Um, it's a really big risk to take and then having to then manage that over time and then Hopefully not, but you know, eventually letting them go. All of that process is a huge, huge distraction for your startup. So the number one recommendation I would have is like, get someone you can really trust, and you, you, you know, whoever recommends them should also uh, understand what their like work environment is. It can't just be someone that they know that they think is smart. Is it someone they've actually worked with? Like you want to see them in different environments. How are they under pressure? How are they in like creative environments? How are they at just you know writing code? You want to evaluate them because, you know, at a startup, they're going to get hit with all sorts of different things. Um, and so rather than trying to design a perfect process where I ask the set of perfect questions, um, you know, because that's just not possible. I try to kind of defer that and be like, do I know someone that I know I've worked with or does somebody else know set up someone that I've worked with? Um, and then when it does come down to questions or interviews, um, for that first employee, I treat it less as a process and more as a conversation. So Maybe you'll have coffee with them. Um, it'll be, you know, over a week. Sometimes you'll reach out to someone and, you know, they're not ready to join you yet, but it's going to be like a process, you know, over a month or two. And it may sound crazy because, you know, you need that code written tomorrow, but it's actually worth it to, to get to know them and for them to get to know you before kind of jumping in. Because again, it's a huge risk, especially with that first employee. Contractors are a little bit different, but with that first employee, you really don't want to to take that risk without knowing enough information. What yeah. are some of the channels that you use to potentially find an employee or a contractor? Um, and like you've mentioned friends already or like friends of friends, um, are there any other channels that you go to? Yeah, one thing I've personally done is if you have, uh, if you're in communities that are uh, high trust, so for example, maybe you were part of some accelerator program, or maybe you're part of like a group of people that are like X, whatever company you're in, right? Like X Uber or whatever. Um, if there are these like groups that are relatively small, but they're high trust, you know, you all share a bond, you all kind of know each other, respect each other. Um, it's good to reach out to those as well. Maybe you don't know someone personally. So for example, I'm part of a bunch of different groups like X Google groups or YC 
um, just reach out to them and be like, you know, you know that it's a, that's a trusted group of people that is also kind of in a similar boat. Um, they'll probably be able to evaluate people the same way you would too. So I think um, what I'm hearing is that the it's really difficult to measure the soft skills and the intangible assets that an employee would be bringing. And some of the ways that you can actually measure these qualities are through recommendations and referrals, um, and also by building a relationship prior to building that actual working relationship. Are there some other ways that you guys have tried to measure those soft slash intangible skills? Uh, <laughs> like some some uh, some method I found useful was to figure out uh, whether their interest really aligns with what you want to do, like what 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 they really want. Uh, uh, people don't. Uh, some people don't plainly tell you the truth, like, oh, uh, uh, but some other people um, uh, do. Like uh, there are some people who who may just tell you, okay, I just. Uh, uh, really interested in what you're doing, it seems to be a really interesting and I like you, etc. But uh, if you sit down and, and think about uh, what's in it for them, or uh, does it really make sense for uh, at this stage for them to, to join this company uh, doing this? Like, is there any evidence to corroborate uh, with what they're saying? Uh, like things don't match up. and, and and uh, that's actually some uh, red flags that um, better to be detect detected early and, and make a not hiring decision. <laughs> um, in terms of like soft skill, I, I think it's really limited. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not that easy to figure that out like, over the, you know, uh, a, a shorter period of time, like an hour of interview. Or if you do like three, four interviews, some I remember in the early days of this company, I uh, interviewed a lot of people, and I did uh, two, three interviews for for a lot of them. Uh, I probably spend ninety percent of the time on technical stuff; <laughs> the rest, uh, not just talking with them. Um, I, I I think uh, most of the time I got it wrong. <laughs> Yeah, and and but what really worked in the end was really to uh, let's say okay, uh, see so you have something the company needs right now, uh, seem to be interesting in the line. Let's just work for a while, no red flag. Let's work for a while and see if it works out. Uh, give it a two weeks, a month. Uh, uh, you know, uh, tailor a small project that can be reasonably completed, and let them propose the details of the project. Uh, for the first month and see uh, if they can finish it and maybe if they couldn't, why and whether they can reasonably pivot uh, their project to something that's useful for the company uh, spontaneously. And uh, are they able to extend their projects to something uh, longer uh, by themselves? Makes sense. It sounds like there's like a few tools we can use. One is by reputation through referrals. Another is you can ask them what their intentions are, what their motivations are. Um, and third, you can sample them. Uh, you can run a simulation 
but you can see their code. You can start by working on a smaller capacity before a longer, a bigger capacity. Um, and sounds like there are limitations to all three approaches. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, you're never really gonna know. Startup is all about risks anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, what about in terms of co-founders? Like, what what would you say is like your ideal co-founder? What would he or she look like? Just making sure my co-founder is in here. Sean, <laughs> <laughs> what's your ideal co-founder? I think. An ideal co-founder would definitely share the same passion and vision. So we're coming to the problem from the same place and then have a very strong action bias. Cause I know for me, I tend to overthink things and I would want someone who's like, no, like, let's go, like, let's do this. Um, so that would be like a good balance between having someone who's like, like training as an attorney where we're taught to like think about all of the different scenarios, but as a co-founder, as someone who's like the leadership in the company, you want to be able to just complete stuff day to day and like have someone who just goes down those paths and can get it done. So like operationally, I think someone who's just like on it, that's, that's the key that I would look for. Yeah, I like what Sean is saying. And um, so I ha I don't have a startup yet. I'm in the very, very early stages just doing market research. So I haven't hired anyone, don't have a co-founder. Um, but one thing that I did hear from somebody else is that if you want to have a co-founder, you should make sure that your skills are complementary. You don't want any overlap in skills, which I think makes sense because you don't want two people being strong in the exact same ways and then like be weak in the exact same ways. And actually for this particular um, startup and for this particular uh, founder, they actually ended up splitting ways because there was too much overlap. Um, so I think for me, if I were to have a co-founder on board, I would want to um, see how, how we would be complementary and um, see if they have anything else that they can bring that I can't bring, which I think is what you're saying, Sean, in, in some ways. Yeah, interesting thing there is, I think, I think you're absolutely right. You need to have complementary skills. But I also think that and maybe this isn't the advice people give, but there should be some amount of overlap as well. And the reason I say that is because the, what the startup needs at a particular point of time will change. And if you are, you know, if you're good at sales and the other person is good at engineering, well, you're not going to need sales every single day of every single moment. If you're in the middle of a pivot, you're not really selling a product. Maybe there's, you know, or maybe you've landed, you know, a hundred customers because you're a really great sales guy. Um, but now the product is behind. So, you know, you need to be flexible in some way. Um, obviously a hundred percent overlap is, is terrible. So is 0%. I don't know what the magic number is, but, um, so my, my co-founder and I both can code. He's a much, much better coder than I, I am. Um, uh, but me being able to kind of hop in and help when it's times of like, we need to get the, something shipped has been immensely helpful. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, um, I usually handle the customer conversations, but he's fully capable of having them. You know, he's not as uh, skilled as in them as I am, but he can certainly kind of hold his own. 
And there have been times where I've been really slammed and he's taken a call or two. And it's just been really helpful um, to have that dynamic. I think if we had completely different skill sets, um, it would be a very, you know, it'd be kind of frustrating as well. I've seen some teams that have that. And especially if it's a team that hasn't worked together for a while, there's this imbalance of work that ends up happening. So like somebody might be resting on their laurels. Like let's say you're in the middle of a pivot. You have no idea what you're building. You know, the sales guy is out there doing market research and the engineer is kind of just sitting there waiting because they, they don't know what to build. Um, and then that creates tension as well. So I would say, you know, try to find the right balance between um, no overlap and 100% overlap. So did you um, have a prior working relationship with your, with your co-founder? Yeah, I did. So both of us worked together on the same team. We were on different roles. So he was an engineer. I was a product person. Um, but, you know, we had that conversation up front to be like, are we both going to code? Are we both going to, you know, do everything? Or is it going to be like a complete split? And I think for me, it just, it just made sense. Um, to kind of share the responsibilities and have a leader, of course, for each department, but it's still being flexible. Aaron, earlier you mentioned like different engineers you're interviewing may have had different expressed uh, motivations. I was wondering like which ones you thought, like what particularly were those motivations and which ones you thought were compatible with your company and which ones wasn't? Uh, yeah, I, I first of all, I couldn't get into too much details because, uh, you know, they may be watching. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, Appreciate the candor. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I think um, um, you know, uh, uh, some engineers are just, just want to do some interesting technical work. Some and other engineers just want to find, uh, uh, you know, some kind of uh, um, high-paying uh, job to maybe uh, see if they're in a difficult financial situation. But see, so you wouldn't be very uh, candid with you. <laughs> um, and there are some other engineers who, okay, might be interested in one particular topic or two, uh, like for example, crypto or or particular use case of AI or some other engineers who are really, really, really good at particular things. You want to find a place where they can use uh, their sort of knowledge and skill to the fullest extent. And I, I, I think, um, those that ended up like uh, working out in long term were those who um, really um, have uh, really really think about the problem, um, not just the technology, uh, not not just oh, this is the kind of AI model I'm going to use in this job. <laughs> That's always going to be problematic. Um, if they are like they, they want to solve this problem, they are like uh, they are more open-minded uh, in terms of like, playing different kind of roles. Like they, they uh, I say they started as a backend engineer. Uh, the uh, but they are open to do some front-end work because that helps solving this problem, and nobody else can uh, can 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 do it at this time. Uh, these type of engineers can be very helpful. Uh, like both in terms of this startup and the startup I've worked at in the past. Um, 
um, like yeah, those engineers who, who tend to like uh, stay within their silo, uh, very specialist that kind of each person, um, it might be a better fit for uh, you know uh, bigger companies. I see. So I, I think you mentioned about three or four motivations, so hmm. including wanting to do great work, whether that's to solve a problem or to do great technical work. You mentioned about wanting to grow, whether that's learning about a new industry or doing a new type of work. And you also mentioned about financial compensation as being a motivation. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the growth mindset and also the problem-oriented mindset are most compatible with what you're doing. Yeah, and a uh, reasonable amount of curiosity uh, to explore other things they haven't done before. Makes sense. Awesome. Thanks for the input, guys. <laughs> um, I have a follow-up question. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. So for those of you guys who do have co-founders, how much of your respective roles did you guys iron out before working together? And what would you say, like, what are the points that you think for sure need to be ironed out in order to set expectations of like sharing this role? Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe you can take it first. Yeah, I, I, I would say iron out everything. Um, and so what me and my co-founder did, even though we knew each other, we've worked together before, and that was like a high trust relationship going in, we wrote everything down. Like we had email where I listed out like, this is what we're gonna do, this is our commitment, we're not gonna quit before you know two years, whatever. Um, if, you know, everything from like, what kind of an exit would we be okay with, you know, um, to like, who's going to do marketing, who's going to do like, everything was laid out and agreed upon before we started our relationship. And in our case, we never looked at it again. And that's the most optimistic scenario. Like we just, we just worked so well together that I don't even remember where those documents are. I could probably find them if I wanted to. We've never looked at them again, but more than likely you're going to have some issues, right? It's not going to go perfectly all the time. And if you don't have a prior agreement, it's just going to be extremely messy. And I've seen this so many times. So, iron out like anything you can think of happening like talk about it now you don't want to talk about it when it happens when emotions are high you want to talk about it when like you're at like a high point in the relationship either like right away or shortly after um, ideally before you get involved just to yeah set expectations i wouldn't leave anything to like assumptions because people are whatever you don't write it down is going to be an assumption that somebody makes and most of the time the assumptions are different and you want to find that out early not late yeah, I agree with this. And uh, and by the way, back to the point of like hiring people, I think setting right expectation is also like important factor. That's why experienced people generally work better because for new grads, they don't know how to set the expectation <laughs> and you sort of have to figure it out for them. And it generally, is a, it doesn't match with the expectations. That's when things go wrong. Like with co-founders, uh, yeah, uh, sometimes uh, in, in, in our case, uh, we, we, like one person just, just naturally fit into some roles, another person just naturally pick up other roles. Like, I, I think this is uh, one of the ideal scenarios in which um, there is very little opportunity for a dispute of, okay, we both want to do this, let's figure out who, who does it better. <laughs> Uh, or nobody wants to do this piece of uh, work, right? Nobody wants to pick it up. Um, I, I think if uh, in the scenario where, where there are two founders like running into this kind of situation, that's 
really it's really important to figure that out before uh, uh, you guys go any further. <laughs> or maybe have a third co-founder. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've, I've been in like a previous situation where I was a friend of a friend and then there was another friend of a friend who was also in the startup and there was a falling out when nothing was like really ironed out and it definitely contributes to like a lot of pain and difficult conversations so I think having like an upfront conversation before going into this, which is like a serious commitment. And I like the idea that like there's our head with like, hey, we're doing this two years no matter what. And like, here's what we're going to do. That to me is like, you're like, you're able to commit what you need to. In the scenario that I was in, there was a, one of the individuals had another job and they were trying to balance it with the startup. And then that contributed to um, some issues on like, hey, we never actually discussed what I was supposed to be committed to. So why is this an issue now? Yeah, makes sense. Um, Yes, we can move on to customer engagement. Uh, I thought your question was really good. And um, do, do you want to maybe introduce the prompt? Yeah, sure. So um, again, just to provide a little background, um, I'm in the very, very early stages of building anything. So currently I'm doing market research. Uh, what does that look like for me? I've been distributing these market surveys to um, potential end users. Uh, and so my question is, um, how do you get people to participate in user studies and user surveys for free and still get really good quality answers. And I'm asking this question because from my experience so far, um, I thought that once I distributed the survey and I sent it out to like my personal network through social media, like random online communities, um, I thought I was gonna hit like at least like 50 in one week. Um, but over a month, um, I got 33 uh, participants. Um, and so I'm just like really curious uh, what maybe your experience has been or what your advice is, um, including what you think realistic expectations are when you are bootstrapping this process. Uh, I, I think for, for it to work, the people who is participating must get some uh, immediate benefit. Uh, like there are companies sending me surveys and, and say it's, uh, there's a high chance they're going to get $50. <laughs> uh, I always feel out that survey, uh, <laughs> if it is relevant. Uh, and, but a lot of times it turns out I'm not qualified uh, because I, 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 I'm not in particular role. So uh, I think these, these are like professional survey companies who, uh, you know, they do a lot of vetting to make sure uh, if every participant is actually getting some money out of this, uh, they gotta be providing some qualified, relevant answer. I see gotta be like doing in particular roles. These are the target audience that you intend to collect answers from. And there are some other times when I do a survey, uh, like for example, I want to access a particular report, like some information that's really valuable for me, but to say, okay, we are not going to send you this report until you fill out this survey. And if it only takes me like two minutes, uh, I'll be like, no problem. 
then I leave my email address and they'll probably have more service later and more information. And yeah, this kind of, um, it seems like a fair deal every time. Yeah, I have a very, yeah, like, well, go ahead. Okay. I was just gonna say, I have a very opinionated, opinionated view of this topic. Uh, I think as an early stage founder, forget about trying to get quantitative analytics yourself. Um, there are people that do this for a living and they do a much better job and the amount of effort needed to get a statistically significant result is too high. Like it's just not worth your time. Um, go to Gartner, go to like these places to get like quantitative information. Your job is to get qualitative information. That's things that these Gartner and these companies don't give you. And in fact, those are the opportunities for you to learn something about the industry that nobody knows, which is how you build your startup. And so I have personally, I've tried them. I've never found surveys to work. I've never found anything that's like, here's a link and do something that like, never works. Um, like, you spend a lot of hours on it and it just doesn't work. The best way to get into it um, is to first to acknowledge, and I don't mean this to like uh, speak ill of anyone, but you don't know what you're doing. Like, nobody knows what they're doing when they start off. I didn't know what I was doing. And so your goal is to try to get a, a holistic understanding of the industry or the problem that you're trying to solve. And so when you think about quantitative surveys, they're more about like, you kind of know most things and you're trying to test one thing or the other. Um, qualitative surveys are, are a view, a window into the person's life. And that's the kind of data you need. And so the best way to do that, that I've found is just ask for people to have a chat with you. If you're selling data, if you're selling a product to, if it's a consumer product, like go to the Starbucks and talk to people and just have an open-ended conversation with them. Structure it in some way, but don't make it like a survey. Just, just talk to them and that'll give you the best data. Um, it's harder to do if you're trying to do something very specific, like, I don't know, if you're trying to sell a B2B product to like pharmaceutical companies, like probably not gonna have like a coffee with you know, the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. It gets harder in, in that sense. And my suggestion there would be, if you have zero context in the pharmaceutical industry, maybe you shouldn't be building that business. Um, so if you're building a business where you should have some idea, whether it's yourself or somebody you know that has that problem, the first thing I would do is grab coffee with them and just like ask him everything under the sun, you know, like what do you do when you wake up? Like, even if it's not relevant, you want to get into the mindset of that person. And there you will find opportunities to then figure out what should I start with? How should I build my product? Um, and even if it's like five people, that's good enough. Go build it and see if there's going to be more than five rather than trying to get like a hundred responses and then being like, Oh, 80% of people have this problem. I've never seen that work rather find five people that are like desperate for your thing right now and just build it for them. And that's a way better way of finding out whether there's a real market or not. Yeah, that's really helpful advice. Um, so to be clear that my survey was actually trying to gather more qualitative information at this point. Um, but it's really reassuring that you say like, just like even like five people as your sample size is good enough to just like start building something. Um, because like I said, I thought in order to have like a really, really good sample size, I had to get like, you know, like at least a hundred or something. So I was like, I only have three, <laughs> but like now you're telling me if it's just the qualitative stuff that I care about at this point, then like five is enough. So long as like it, it, they're providing really, really good insight. So, right. um, yeah, so this is actually like really, uh, really encouraging and like gives me a way to kind of now think about like moving forward. So thanks so much for that.
Yeah. And I would just to add to that, like, I think that the key is the amount of depth you get from those five people, right? You don't want that those five people to just have like, you know, for example, if you have like a text box, it's like, what problems do you have, you know, printing? Someone might type one or two sentences. If you have a conversation with them about printing, they can talk for, you know, half an hour about all their problems. And that's way more valuable than, you know, the one or two sentences you might get otherwise. Because you yeah. can ask probing questions and stuff. So it's like you're going to spend the same amount of time. You're just going to do it with less people, but hopefully richer data. Yeah, I think I think uh, for me, my takeaway right now is like this is probably a good point for me to now do like have follow up conversations with people who did provide really good insight into the survey. So that's good. Cool. Really good. Yeah, let us know how it goes too. <laughs> yeah, and uh, to add to that, another uh, good method is like, providing some uh, consulting services. Uh, if they are already paying you to solve a problem, that means the, uh, it's even better than a survey, right? <laughs> the stronger validation. Yeah, I think 33 data points is pretty good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a lot more than what we used to get in most of our surveys. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with Sir. I think you learn 80% of what you need to know uh, in the first five conversations you have with people. Um, and initially, you're really trying to understand like um, the why behind what customers do. Um, and it's less important to sort of figure out the difference between do you know 70% of customers share this problem or do 85% of customers share this problem. Yeah, and I'm already seeing a pretty consistent theme and trend anyway. So maybe that's like answering enough for me to, okay, like it's time to really just like move forward now. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll keep you guys updated for sure. Thanks yeah. so much. Um, and this kind of leads into Sean's question too about uh, what questions to ask customers. Um, do you want to uh, introduce that, Sean? Sure. So I think like, just going into it so you're having that conversation or a coffee chat if if you want to know everything about the customer how do you start it off and how do you build a relationship with the customer that's going to be for the long term based off of those questions because i don't want it to seem like okay like what's your answer to this question what's your answer to this question it should be more of a conversation that builds on top of it. Um, it. Is there like a general starting place or is it very specific depending on the industry? When you're trying to understand who is your customer. I guess, yeah, I'm kind of curious, like Zerzar coming from like, I, I know you did a lot of customer interviews, like what were some of the most fruitful questions that you've asked your customers? Um, yeah, I mean, specifically it, um, yeah, it depends on like what exactly your, your problem is, but, but the general advice I have is like broad is better. So like, don't ask them, Hey, do you like the color of this button? It's like, that's not going to help you at all. Um, yeah. You want to ask them like broad to the point of like, they don't even know what you're trying to ask. That's good. Right. So, <laughs> You know, asking them, like, for example, again, with my stupid printer example, like rather than saying like, hey, do you have problems with your printer? It's almost like a leading question. You're not going to get a lot of responses. I would ask like, hey, what's what, what are some of the most frustrating parts of your job? And I will watch for whether the printing comes up. 
And if it doesn't come up, that's a data point already. Maybe, maybe printing is not a big problem. And if they volunteer that information, then I can kind of zoom in and say, what about printing? And again, I'm not asking like, oh, you have problems with printing? Uh, would a feature that like you press this button and this happens, will it work? Like, is it good? Like, you don't want to ask any types of those specific questions. You just want to kind of, almost like a therapist. This is maybe a weird analogy, but you know how a therapist, they're just like, and how does that, <laughs> Tell me about your how, do I even, how do I even answer that, right? It's like very general. And the point is like, think about, you know, the whole point of your conversation is to probe about whether what you're solving is a real problem. If you volunteer the problem, you've already lost because you don't know if it's a real problem because you already put, you know, made the conversation about the problem. You want to kind of set the tone and see if the problem comes up. And that's, so my general advice would be like, make it as broad as possible. So I tried doing that and I found it really awkward <laughs> to execute. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if part of it's cause like for, for what it is I'm doing, like people kind of from my profile, they know like I'm a patent attorney and I'm, I'm talking to other patent attorneys. Uh, so naturally the expectation is a little bit higher that, you know, I, I shouldn't be asking questions like, so how, how do you write a patent? <laughs> Could you walk me through uh, how you go about writing your patent application? <laughs> so I, I guess in those cases, you know, I don't know if you ever had awkward conversations where people are confused by really broad open-ended questions and how do you approach those? How do you deal with that? I, I think it's part of the job. I mean, so I, I did for, for our last product, I did like, I don't know, almost a hundred interviews and some of them were just awkward and you just kind of move on, right? Like I had very general questions too. Like I would start by asking people like, where do you waste the most time in your day, like in your work day? And you know, people would um, say a bunch of things. Meetings is what, what I was searching for and it would come up a lot. But some people would just be like, I don't really waste time at work. And then you're just like, uh, okay, like, I'm sure that's not true, but you just said that. And like, I can't tell you that you're lying. Right. It's like, like what do I do in that situation? And I don't know. It's, it's like a numbers game. I mean, part of it is like phrasing the questions is an art and there's a great book called the mom test, which I'm sure all of you have read, but if you haven't pick up that book, it's a great uh, way to like how to phrase questions. So part of it is the phrasing, but part of it is also just accepting the reality that some people are just awkward and you just need to talk to more people <laughs> you talk to people who are kind of more comfortable having those types of conversations and you'll find they'll go really well and the same exact questions with someone who's you know not as um well versed in those types of conversations will give you awkward responses and then you'll kind of just have to end early and, and move on i don't know do you find that with um like like comparing different customers you're talking to right like someone who is more you know, maybe more junior versus someone who is more senior. Like if you're talking to like a VP of a company and he decided to spend 20 minutes with you, like, do you change your questions to be more targeted for those conversations or do you keep them kind of open-ended? Um, I think that really depends on what you're trying to search for. If the, if the VP is using your product differently or you think they have a different problem, then yeah, it's gotta be a completely different conversation. If it's the exact same thing, like if it's, you know, again, a stupid printer example, everyone is going to print the same way. Maybe the VP has like an EA that prints or something. But if it's the same exact product, same exact problem, I would probably have the same exact conversation. And in fact, that'll actually help you understand if there is a difference. If you're asking the same questions and you're getting different responses from someone who's senior, well, that's another data point for you. 
Um, yeah, I wouldn't change the questions unless like the problem itself is different for someone more senior. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. <laughs> I think it's tricky like when in the situation where you're an industry insider, I think like if you can come in as an outsider, then the expectation is lower than you can do that. I, I just don't know like with me and like say like law firm partners, like you know how how much bandwidth I can get if I keep asking open-ended questions and well, here, I don't know. here's a tip um, yeah bring someone along that's not a lawyer and be like hey can you just be very elaborate because this person also needs to like they don't know much about the industry and that way they're not going to make assumptions that like oh you're a lawyer you know how bad patents are they're actually going to tell you because mm -hmm. and this other person can just be your friend like doesn't have to be anyone to come. yeah <laughs> <laughs> I find in those situations, they will just stop talking to that person. They'll just <laughs> talk to me. Maybe I'm doing something wrong in those cases. I need to redirect to talk to them. But then they're like, why aren't you talking to me? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's also possible to ask uh, some leading questions. I, I, I ask a lot of leading questions, uh, but uh, I, I don't just ask leading question in one particular category and hope that they give a positive answer because that's, that's just fooling yourself. Um, so uh, you can ask uh, leading questions for uh, two, say, two adjacent features or two uh, adjacent problems uh, that you know, okay, is, is, is within the confinement of the space that you set the scene in and you measure how they respond differently to these two different problems or two different features. Uh, you know, uh, for the first feature, like for example, in, in our uh, current product, we asked about social proof, we also asked about social listening, we also asked about reviews uh, or uh, feedback aggregation. And the potential customer could be really excited about feedback aggregation. Uh, but when I bring up the topic about social listening, and uh, so you'll be like, oh yeah, that's useful. Yeah, would be pretty interesting. And that's a very negative signal compared to the enthusiasm they showed for feedback aggregation analysis. Uh, same in social proof. Uh, some, if they don't understand certain concepts, you can explain a little bit and see how they react. Or is it a really a problem with social proof or, or is it a problem with like conversions or, or or they just have no idea what their visitors are or customers are doing. Like, uh, there are like customers at different levels. Uh, they have different background knowledge. I think there are gotta be some nuanced uh, methodical ways of uh, getting uh, some, uh, getting and measuring the response that we get. Uh, like when I talk to you know people with PhD backgrounds, like you just say conversion, oh, we optimize conversion, we do optimization. They get pretty excited. You say the same thing to uh, when you interview customers who, you know, just uh, with less quant uh, quantitative backgrounds, you just have no idea what you're talking about. So you'd be like, why do I want it? Why do I want it? <laughs> uh, and they care about different things. And uh, yeah, it's uh, a lot of times we, we prepare uh, different categories of questions beforehand and just be flexible when, when we interact with a customer. Yeah, it's really very much an art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, forge your own path. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, so I guess we'll go ahead, Sean. No, go ahead, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So I think Zerzar, you wanted to um, discuss about pivoting. I thought it was a really great question. Um, uh, knowing when to pivot and how strongly to pivot, and like how do you develop a falsifiable hypothesis to make that kind of decision? Um, did you want to chat a bit about the context behind that question, Zerzar? Yeah, I think this is one of the age old questions that every entrepreneur has at some point in their life, which is like, I'm really passionate about this problem and you need to have that like almost infallible belief. But at the same time, you don't want to spend 10 years of your life solving something that nobody cares about. Um, and so my question is like, what are some of the things that you guys have found useful um, in evaluating and just being honest with yourself and being like, should I keep doing this idea or should I stop and do something else? And if you've ever actually like made a decision to do something else, how have you thought about like, you know, am I going to go from like manufacturing to healthcare or am I going to like stay in manufacturing and do some other problem? Like, how do you think about the scope of possibilities after you maybe decide to pivot from your original idea? No in law school, uh, I was working with friends on a teledentistry startup, and we had our pivot involved how focused we were going to be within a, a single market. So we weren't pivoting. We decided to pivot to a broader use case of, like, basically providing teledentistry services to like a immediate first customer rather than a second opinion model where you would get a customer after they've already been treated by a dentist or seen by a dentist but aren't sure if that is like if they got the best advice right like they're thinking like oh um can i see a second dentist to get better advice anyway so for us, the conversation was around, do we want to be solving a very specific issue for a smaller set of customers, or do we want to go after a bigger market and see if like legal regulations change around um, dentistry? So ultimately, like for us, it was basically just stay within the market that we have information in already, but decide on the scope. Um, and like either way we were getting good feedback, but the issue still was like, would investors find it as like a, a good idea to, um, to fund. Mm -hmm. And those were the conversations we were having on like, is this actually viable, you know, long-term, um, and how did you make that first decision that you that you did need to pivot? Like, how, when did you realize that, like, oh, we need to rethink parts of the assumptions we had before? What what caused that? Yeah, questioning. Yeah, so uh, we were going through the the iLab Venture Incubation Program, mm -hmm. and at at the end of that program, you're doing like a pitch for investors. So. I think during the 10 weeks we, would, we had conversations with like other teams and like the size of the problem they were solving. 
And then we were looking at the size of our phone and being like, are we going to try and like grow this market that exists or should we just go like broad and then like adjust? Um, so I think we were like, well, it seems like the companies that have a broader problem are getting more traction. Mm-hmm. And for us, it was important to like go after something bigger and then we adjusted. Cool. Yeah, I think this distinguishing between like big pivots and small pivots, like big pivots being sort of, you know, you're doing a whole other business, small pivots being like you're kind of doing something a bit more um, specific. Like uh, I think for me, I made some small pivots with res- uh, in response to customer feedback, um, like um, starting out with more proofreading features because like those are some features that customers are currently responding to um, and then sort of saving drafting features for long-term longer term uh, goals and I think also like uh, in response to like how law firms actually adopt software kind of pivoting uh, thinking about not not so much a, a like getting out of the word plugin environment like still have the word plugin but also introduce like a web application platform to encourage faster adoption rather than requiring uh, uh, the software to be installed in the firm's internal systems. Um, so those weren't, I guess those aren't really pivots in the usual sense of building startups. Um, I think with respect to like the bigger pivots, I wouldn't really think about making those pivots un- unless there were some like fundamental shifts in the industry. Um, like if, um, if for some reason, like the patent industry, like if there was a new law passed that substantially reduced the amount of patents being filed, uh, then, then maybe this is not the right market to be in if it just suddenly shrank by 10 X. Um, but I know Aaron, you made a pivot from like a more blockchain oriented application to a more general purpose marketing oriented application. Uh, maybe you can talk a bit about your thought process through that. Uh, we made a couple of pivots, uh, including from consumer to business and including from uh, e-commerce to blockchains and back to uh, a broader set of including e-commerce, uh, like B2C companies. We, uh, I, I guess each time there's some uh, learning experience and I, I think there are two important factors when we make this kind of decision. One is, um, as a market, uh, does it, uh, the, uh, is the marketing going away such that, uh, we can reasonably reach the next milestone? Uh, um, and what, what are the risks associated, associated with that? Uh, for blockchain it changed a lot. And because of that, we were, uh, very un- uncertain for a period of time. Uh, that also has something to do with our lack of uh, understanding of how customers really want, uh, how they operate. <laughs> um, and I guess initially we also got the wrong set of uh, audience. You know, uh, like we, we uh, a lot of people who were really interested in what they're doing early on was traders, uh, which we had no idea uh, how to serve and aren't that really passionate about trading ourselves. So it doesn't work out. <laughs> um, 
we uh, with e-commerce like from sh a shift from to consumer to to business that's another thing so um, there are things we severely underestimated like uh, it's very hard like in general to predict consumer behavior mm -hmm. like either they like your it's not like either they like your product or they don't like your product or your product provides some value so people are going to use it now, a lot of times um, it doesn't work this way. It requires your product has some viral property in it. It requires um, uh, frequent interaction between your product and 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 and, and the consumers themselves. And early on, we didn't have this kind of insights when we were building some consumer-oriented product, and that's why we uh, we screwed up. <laughs> uh, and and we. Uh, when we decided to uh, pivot, we look at what we have right now. How do we reach the next milestone? And how do we think the market is going to respond? Mm. And each time it takes less amount of time for us to validate the assumption. We just are getting better and better. Uh, one is to uh, validate the product. Uh, and faster to build the MVP. Like in the uh, for, for the current product we are doing, the initial validation stage when building the MVP took us like uh, two weeks mm. to build to build it, have someone paying for it, mm. and have uh, at least ten customers in line uh, waiting to talk to us. Mm. And then we figured, okay, this product is not competitive because of this and that reason. Let's do a bigger set. Let's reposition it. So we are. Um, getting better at this process in terms of like uh, first making sure the general direction is right. Then let's do some micro adjustments, sort of like machine learning, uh, <laughs> human learning. <laughs> what is your current thought process? There's our own, like when is the right time to pivot for your company? Yeah, I mean, we kind of, did based on the whole coronavirus thing. So, I mean, our company was focused on physical meeting rooms and when everyone started working from home, that was a pretty big shock to the demand for our product. Um, and so that was a very obvious indicator that we should pivot. Um, at the same time, we knew that the product is useful and it's gonna be useful in the future. Uh, it's just not useful at the moment. And so that was a weird situation because because we had so much demand prior to coronavirus, um, we were, did, we didn't want to just give up and be like, oh, coronavirus, let's do something else. Let's like, you know, build a printer business. Um, and so we uh, then decided like, what is something we can do that's related either in terms of the technology. So our technology was about resource optimization. Can we apply that optimization to other industries? Um, that way the core technology, the core value we're providing is the same or do we pivot um, on the uh, product, but not the market? So is there other productivity issues that are happening within the corporate meeting, corporate um, you know, communication space? Uh, and the image that comes in my head is like, if you think about a pivot, like I don't know if you guys watch basketball, but a pivot is like you keep one foot in the same place. That's what a pivot is. You don't like jump somewhere else. And so that's the way we were thinking about it. It's like what stays, constant and what changes and if nothing stays constant that's probably a bad idea because we came into this business for some reason right either we love the market or we love 
where we had some insight and it would be weird to abandon all of that and do something completely different unless we somehow developed a passion for it while doing what we were doing. Um, and so, so that was kind of the indicator for us that, Hey, we need to pivot um, and, and kind of how we were thinking about what to do. And then after that, it was just like experiments. So we ran a bunch of experiments and now we're chasing the ones that were most promising. So you made a product pivot then uh, the customer stayed the same and the product changed. Yeah. I mean, initially we tried both, right? We, we uh, ran some extra, we had some conversations with people from healthcare, from real estate, um, uh, education. And we were like, Hey, we have this product and you have resources, whether that's hospital beds or, you know, um, workplace rooms for apartment buildings or tutors in terms of education um, and tried to apply the same thing. And then we got, you know, in some cases we got paying customers in other cases we didn't get anything. Um, and then we also made a product pivot of like, okay, after coronavirus is over, what are people going to need in terms of software to manage their offices? Cause their offices are going to look very different. Um, and so we kind of did all of those in parallel uh, and we're chasing whatever opportunity seems to be most promising based on customer feedback. What's your current hypothesis right now? Yeah, I mean, so we built or we're in the process of building a software that helps um, employees book work desks. So as people come back to the office, they're going to completely change their floor plan. Nobody's going to have assigned seating. All the desks are going to be six feet apart. Um, people are not going to be required to come to the office, but they'll optionally be able to. And so that environment is very, very different. And so we're building software that helps you, if you decide to come to the office, book a desk, um, pick a desk that's close to coworkers, look up coworkers, whether they're in the office or somewhere else. Um, and then in the back end, also do all sorts of different things like analytics on how many desks you need based on demand, um, contact tracing in case somebody gets sick, like were they in the office, who do they meet with, who do they talk with. Uh, so far, we've found customers are, are thinking about it the same way as we are. So hopefully that's the direction we'll go in. Otherwise, we'll have to pivot again. <laughs> It's tricky to get the timing right, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes sense for a great use case right now, I think. Yeah, I Us. guess it's, uh, each time pivoting, it's important to figure out what assumptions went wrong or what we did wrong for last time. Uh, like there are different levels of risk uh, in the assumptions. And what we learn is like so making an assumption about the market or where the market is going is pretty bad, bad idea. It's the <laughs> most <laughs> the most risky uh, assumption. Right? Yeah, like if not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think some people would call that stupidity opinionated. <laughs> yeah, I think in response to your like broad question on when to pivot. I was just thinking like it makes sense to set up a falsifiable, falsifiable hypothesis up front. Um, and I, I haven't been doing a good job of this myself, <laughs> uh, but like to set up criteria up front on like when's the right time to call it. Right. Um, I think like you mentioned time as being one criteria. We're going to do this two years after two years, we'll reevaluate. And that's kind of how I've thought about it too. Like, I'm, but, but I wonder if it could be more empirically driven, like, we're going to um, build a product up to this date, send it out to this many customers. And if it doesn't hit the thresholds, then, you know, that's the market telling us whether this is the right direction to proceed. 
I think Aaron, you were kind of experimenting with that model recently, um, sending releasing an MVP in two weeks and then seeing how people responded and if you can hit a certain certain threshold, then you'll continue down this line or not. Um, yeah. Uh, after uh, as I think we uh, what's currently working right now is we 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 build say a something presentable something that you can evaluate upon. Uh, I remember in our first version, it's just a widget and a, a website in plain HTML. Like, you know, it's just a bunch of H1 and P with no styling at all. And I just write down what this product is supposed to do. And I share it to some people. Some people just uh, uh, are totally don't get it. And but some other people think it's pretty cool. and. Are even willing to pay pay a deposit uh, for to to be able to use it uh, in the future, um, and then I observe uh, does it that does it really uh, uh, that does it really solve their problem? Does it make sense? I, I I talk to them. I get them opportunities. I to really understand their problem and what they want. Uh, uh, in addition, now to this widget. <laughs> And then I go to the next iteration. I refine the website and maybe we build some plugins. And we, uh, because of that, we are able to reach a bigger set of, of uh, customer. Uh, you know, it's customers who generally don't respond to a really ugly HTML page, but would respond to <laughs> to some uh, workable plugin uh, or some website with some reasonable graphic to show them what's going on. And, and then we, we talk to them more and understand the problem better and understand the inclination, inclination of payment or criteria for payment. And then we regard what uh, was a, uh, the arrows in our previous assumption. Like for example, we, we thought, okay, social proof, cool. Everybody wants to do it. It turns out like some people uh, don't want to have a, uh, want to stay aloof a little bit, but really care about, still very care about what people think about them. So for them, uh, review and feedback and be able to analyze them and share a selective uh, amount of reviews and, and maybe like in the end optimize performance a little bit through some methods, that's important. Be able to see the analytical result. And then we adjust the messaging on the website and uh, figure out the customer's communities. Uh, where, uh, where can we uh, do some code reach out? Where can we just post something and people will just automatically respond? And you know, talk to more. <laughs> and we are still like repeating this. <laughs> awesome, cool. Well, yeah, thanks for coming, everyone. <laughs> um, I think we'll end it there and we'll make this like what makes more sense to you guys, like a weekly thing or a bi weekly thing? What uh, would fit better with your schedule? I think bi-weekly would make more sense, more content to talk about, more updates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, bi-weekly, I think if we can set up a central theme for each time, like for example, we can talk about girls or talk about uh, a particular topic more in depth. Uh, That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a different um, central topic that we can ask questions about. Um, yeah, I think so today we cover like team building, customer engagement and pivoting. That's kind of a little <laughs> too spread out, I think. Maybe next time we'll just focus on one of these three aspects and we'll dive in a little bit deeper.
Mm -hmm. yeah, cool.